I planned it so that I announced the man and husband and wife right over the southern pylon of the Harbour Bridge at 800 feet. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to episode 45 of the Rotary Wing Show. Today we pick up where we left off in the last episode in our interview with Rosemary Arnold. Rosemary was the first female helicopter pilot in Australia and the Southern Hemisphere. In part one, we talked about how she did her flying training in secret as a mum of four kids, set up her own helicopter company, a flight across the US and the first commercial Hughes 500, and some of the challenges in her early career. If you haven't listened to part one yet and are working backwards through the podcast, then my suggestion would be to go and listen to episode 44. It'll fill in a lot of the context and set up the background for the remainder of this interview. In part two, we continue to follow Rosemary's career through all the way into her 80s, where she was still very much involved in aviation as an author and marriage celebrant performing helicopter weddings over Sydney Harbour. There is also some life advice tucked in there at the end for anyone feeling the crunch from the current oil and gas uh, downturn or having difficulty cracking that next flying gig. I hope you really enjoy it. Let's get back into it. While all this is going on, you've got so many things on the boil. So you also then were campaigning for Sydney City helicopter landing sites because I take it they're kind of restricted. You had to be a special person to land it anywhere that wasn't approved. And then the other thing too, somewhere in there you, you were one of the founding members or you started up the Helicopter Association of Australia, the HAA. Yes, I did. I wanted to get a series of public use helipads. There were none. None of the hospitals had helipads. And to get to land anywhere, you'd get fined. I got uh, fined $1,000 for landing in a car graveyard up on the northern beaches of Sydney by the council because I hadn't put in a request to do it. And uh, so you had to get permission from councils all the time. I thought if we could get an organisation together, which I called the Helicopter Association of Australia, we could link all the pilots, all the owners, and all the the lameys, the mechanics as well, because they were an overlooked bunch, and they were the backbone of the aviation industry, the helicopter industry. They kept us airborne, and I wanted to respect their position in aviation, so I joined them all together, and I spent an entire 12 months going around to local councils between as far north as Newcastle, all around Sydney, and as far south as Wollongong, approaching the councils to set up a public-use helipad for us to be able to use and for rescue work, because the rescue helicopter was just coming into its own. Uh, The Northern Beaches finally got one, and it was called the Westpac, no, the Wales helicopter, Bank of New South Wales. Alan Edwards was their first pilot. And then the police used to use that as well before they got their own. The only other government uh, helicopter at the time was DMR, part of the main roads, and a, a pilot friend of mine called Noel Dodwell was their first pilot for a long time, and he had the J model, the 47J, before he got a Jet Ranger, and his call sign was DMR. Well, I I did this groundwork on all the public speaking and presenting at facts at councils. But you'd get sort of opposition, like people would say, the noise would blow the leaves off the trees and deafen the helicopters, deafen the koalas. Now, koalas are half drunk on eucalyptus leaves anyway, and I've never seen a koala get deafened by a helicopter, nor is it destructive to blow leaves off trees. We're looking at a 100 feet by 100 feet 
minimum landing spot and, uh, you know, you're not, you're not going to be near trees. Anyway, these were the stupid uh, criticisms. That, and I used to get booed and hissed at council meetings when all I was trying to do was get public-use rescue helicopter pads. Because these days, if you're building a hospital anywhere, like one of the first planning considerations is where where's the helipad going to be, whether it's on the yeah. roof or across the road of at course. a public park or something like that. So yeah, it's just yeah, of course. interesting how that changes. Blacktown uh, Hospital put in the first uh, helipad. And uh, so I then um, I uh, organised a the first Australian helicopter show, air show. We had 11 helicopters coming to the Blacktown showground and uh, we put on a day's event there for the general public and that was the, the Wales helicopter with uh, Alan Edwards. He brought all his rescue stuff in and showed it to everybody and it was quite an event. I think it was in June of 77. And back to the public use ones back in, I guess, in inner Sydney, you then actually got one approved. I'm not, I'm I not got sure. one down on at Piermont Bridge on the wharf. Uh, this was this is now a whole big uh, Sydney entertainment area there, but uh, I got that approved. Uh, I lobbied with uh, parliamentarians, and the the honourable uh, Paul Lander was the minister for the environment and lands at the time, and I went to his Macquarie Street office and lobbied, and he said, "Yes, you can have the domain car park roof," and. Uh, that had just been put in, and it wasn't the most ideal helipad site. You you really only had one path coming in and out. But anyway, it was pretty close to a whole lot of other landing area like Hyde Park. And so then he suddenly phones me and he says, oh, sorry, I've got to change my mind on that. The concrete roof is now being turfed, so it's grass, and I can't give you any grass. So, you know, this was an environmental issue, and here was the concrete under a few inches of, of dirt. So he said, I'll give you another spot, and it was the Piedmont Wharf. So your approach there was coming in over Piedmont Bridge and landing. And it, it was not a bad site, but it didn't last long. They then took it over again. I was in America at the time, so I'm not too sure of the politics. But Neville Rand opened this public use helipad at uh, Piedmont and he made this great politician speech you know about oh I was driving along in the car with Jill and said I must get a public use helipad for Sydney and here it is and I was gobsmacked I had done years of work on this and suddenly a politician takes the crown and one of my daughters, not my adult daughters, one was so irate, she shouted out, you didn't do it, my mother did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. So you, you were the first one to, to land in there. and uh, Yeah, yeah I had the Enstrom that day, yeah. And I guess this is going back a while too. So you kind of think of Sydney City now with you know the, the high-rises and, and it's, you know, really it's probably the most built-up part in Australia. But then you actually you had another gig where you were doing low-level pipeline inspection, yes. and you're sitting there with like a refidex or a, a you know a street directory on your on your lap working your yeah. way around. So what was that like? Was that right through well, inner Sydney, or was this out yeah, on the, on the suburbs? Yeah, I had to have a street directory. It was a gas pipeline, and you had to go along. I did it all out in the bush uh, in New South Wales as well. I was operating a, a Hiller 12E, and Laurie McIver owned it at Hoxton Park, and Laurie had got his helicopter license but didn't have the experience and was pretty nervous like we all were to fly over Sydney in the CBD because there'd been a very major crash back in Christmas of 65, I think it was, or 66. Anyway, that uh, a helicopter went into Goldfield's house, um, killing the three occupants of the helicopter, including a Channel 2 reporter. Anyway, that's by the by, but... Uh, yeah, this this, uh, this was the gas pipeline. Um, this was back in the eighties, I think it was, and so you had to go up sort of George Street, turn left into King Street, go up to Macquarie Street, turn left, then go right, and it, the idea was you had to look down and see if anybody was digging up the pipeline and was in danger of hitting it. 
So that was the idea. But to get, as you know, to you, street directory was the only way to do it. I've still got the street directory with the highlighted um, path, the flight path that I had to do. But on one occasion, I, I think it was in King Street, I had to turn left and there was my solicitor's building and he was looking out his window waving to me. <laughs> so what heights were you doing that at, Rosary? <laughs> Look, I'm not too sure. But, uh, it, obviously, I was looking down towards him and he was looking up, but I was not in danger of hitting any high-rises, but it would have been, at the time, it should have been 1,500 feet. But I think I had a clearance at a 1,000 um, to do this particular work because it was a government contract. Oh, fair enough. No, I, I had this picture of you might have been like you know, 300, oh, no. 300 feet over rooftops. Oh, in, heaven in Sydney no, not even so. below 500. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but uh, sometimes it was 500 or it was a lot less than that out in the bush. Was there a really obscure job that you did or a type of cargo that you had to shift before we move on from the Sydney area flying? I never did uh, sling work. I remember doing a TV commercial on the beach across the surf at Palm Beach and I flew sideways down the, the waves so he could get all the best shots and that was pretty hairy and I, I wasn't all, it was in a huge 300, I wasn't all that experienced at the time and I, I think back and I think, gee whiz, uh, you know, my guardian angel was working overtime that day I think because it was a bit precarious to be flying sideways down the, the surf. Was there any other, any other times in your flying career where you kind of thought, gee, that was close? Or Oh, yes, quite often. I mean, the heaviness of... Uh, the first time that Channel 2 reporters and cameramen went in a helicopter after the crash in Goldfield's house, I had that responsibility to carry them. There had been a bomb scare. Uh, it was the Prime Minister's conference, an international conference in Sydney, was at the Sheraton Hotel where there was a bomb. And so they quickly moved the conference to Bowral and the army came in, the military. And so we all, the helicopters had to go down and fly the crew, uh, the media crew. Well, you know, Channel 7 had their own, Channel 10 had their own, Channel 9. And so Channel 2 was allowed to fly and I was chosen to be the pilot in the Bell 47J at the time, and uh, I had to land in a park at Barrel, but on the way down from Sydney, special clearances had to be given to the helicopters, and to my horror, I'm looking down following the road, and here's all tanks and armoured personnel uh, in every culvert as I was flying. And uh, then two military uh, jet rangers came alongside and pointed their guns at me and I'm thinking if I've got a special clearance to do this it's very obvious who I am and where I'm going and so they they tried to play silly buggers with me by zooming around and that with their extra speed but I just sat it out but when I got down there I had to land in a park to pick up the camera crew and of course the uh, it was a quite a density altitude down on that day, a very hot day. And when the camera crew got on board, having lied to me about their weight, etc., I couldn't get it off the ground. And I backed up into the trees to get a bit of a longer runway at this park. And I nearly wiped out the tail rotor, but didn't. And so it was then I experimented with a takeoff, which is called a running, you'd know, a running takeoff, and you just lift the skids off a fraction and scrape them along the ground and only make right turns. And so I went round and round the park until I got some speed up to lift off. But, you know, I was pretty cross with them that day about the weight, but it taught me a lesson, you know, never trust anybody when they say how much they weigh. Yeah, very much so, and, and I guess back to the, that, that type of machine too. There's, there's not much yeah. leeway in terms of, of excess power and and uh, and the loading. Well, you never took off unless you had an extra two inches of manifold pressure. So, you know that was the rule, and you didn't. But uh, anyway, that was that was very hairy, and it was quite an experiment that I did, and 
it came off all right, because once you're in the air, you're all right, it, and you're burning off fuel. Now, Rosemary, you head back to the States uh, for a period, and we'll, we'll come back to that one, but you also went to Indonesia and had a, a bit of an adventure over there. So can you talk about some of your international travels? The Indonesian job, um, I got that through a, a very well-known pilot, uh, Les Morris, and he was trying to uh, get staff, a, a helicopter pilot for this operation, the DeLong Corporation, uh, acting out of uh, Balakpapan, which is Borneo, and it was to fly a 47B, no, a G model. I didn't have a 47 endorsement at the time, and I didn't have all that many hours on the Hughes 300. Uh, it was 1970. But I was so desperate to get a job, and this was the only job offering. So it was a two-month contract at $1,000 a month. I had four kids, single mum, and uh, I I went for it. Because I was a legal secretary at the time, and $1,000 a month was huge money. So I put in a, a friend who was a housekeeper and um, went overseas. And they actually sent me the air ticket. So, you know, it was I had accepted the job for a two-month contract, and they sent me the air ticket. So I, off I went. And when I got to Darwin, the captain of the airliner said to me, came back, he said, don't get off. We'll only be here for a short while, but do not get off because they're not going to let you get back on again. The uh, company has said, we've changed our mind, we don't want her, and so get her off the plane and send her back to Sydney. So how would he have, how would he have got that message, though? Like, they would have had to then come through the airline company to get to him, or...? I don't know, but, I mean, it was... He's the DeLong Corporation. Uh, Colonel DeLong was an American, and he had oodles of money. And so I, there'd been a story in the paper saying I was going to go to, I think the headline was Jungle Rose. He was Jungle Rose going over to Balakpapan to fly in the jungle. And uh, so the pilot said to me, the captain said to me, look, I read about you in the paper and you get there and fight it out when you get there, but we're not putting you off the plane. I had been a legal secretary for a barrister who knew Indonesian law and he had said to me if you can get your feet on Indonesian soil they can't fire you so they'll have to give you compensation so that's what I did anyway Les Morris met me at Singapore and I flew in the DC-3 the company's DC-3 across to uh, Borneo and um, it was then the, the guy said all right you're here now you can fly and Les said but the jewels haven't come. I was to give you an endorsement, and the jewels are not here. The jewel controls. Anyway, the fellow says, you'll fly me first thing in the morning, 9 o'clock. Okay. So I spent the night reading the handling notes, saying if he's stupid enough to fly with me, then I'll take a chance. And uh, <clears throat> so he came in in the middle of the night and said, uh, get on the plane out of here in the morning, you're fired. And I was sharing a bedroom with his girlfriend. And I turned to this German woman and said, I've just been fired. And she said, you were never hired. <laughs> so I got on the plane and went back to Singapore and and stayed there three weeks to till I got some compensation. So I got $1,500 out of the 2000 So that wasn't too bad. But again, I'm, I'm just picturing that. This is, you know, 1970, um, or around about there. You've got four kids at home. You, you would probably have been the only uh, Caucasian female, well, I guess probably the only female pilot possibly in, in Southeast Asia, uh, and you're off in, in Borneo in the middle of the jungle. So this is kind of not your average adventure. I prob- yeah, it's probably the only one in the Southern Hemisphere because in 65 when I got my licence, uh, 99th in the world, I was the only one in the Southern Hemisphere. I was the only one in Australia for 12 years, so it was about 77 until the second woman took out a licence in Australia. We're talking 1970, yes. 
All right, so you, and you pick up a bit of DC three time as well while you're over there, just for, just for something different. <laughs> so. Oh, that's right. I yeah, I flew. I I logged quite a few hours on the DC three at the time. I logged thirty three hours actually, and uh, I flew another company's DC three. I bumped into a pilot in the street, and he said, "Look, please, will you come fly first officer for me? My, I'm grounded. I haven't got enough staff." And I said, oh, okay. He said, you know what? You'll be flying in and out of Ballot Tap, and so you can thumb your nose at those people. So that I that was a really enjoyable time. <laughs> so there wasn't a uh, wasn't a career in the airlines there. You really wanted to come back to helicopters? <laughs> no, I, I like the DC three. Always have, um, but that's another one. I had all this time on it, but once back in Australia, DCA wouldn't give me an endorsement. Their complaint was that the leg loadings in asymmetric flight were too strong for a woman. That was the excuse. <laughs> uh, another woman actually uh, got an endorsement round about this same time, and she was Christine Davy, who uh, was I first met Chris in '63 uh, when we flew together to Adelaide from Goulburn. She was a flying instructor in Goulburn, but she was an Olympic skier, a champion, and so her her legs were pretty strong. I mean, mine, mine were never tested. They were just presumed they weren't strong enough. But uh, Christine got hers, but I, I know that she mentioned that this was mentioned to her about uh, the leg loading too too heavy for a woman. Yeah. All right, so yeah, different world. Um, mm. Okay, so then you end up in the, in the US, and also there's a note there about uh, Oshkosh and being a, a tour leader. So was that part of the when you went back to the US a second time, or was that something that happened? I went permanently elsewhere? to the US to live and for a job in '83, uh, but before that, I had been to America quite a few times. I think six or seven. Um, Oshkosh. The first one was when I flew at 500 across America. Um, that was in 69. And uh, But the Oshkosh was, I think it was 76, I went as tour leader to Oshkosh. And that was organised, I don't know, did you organise it yourself from, from here or was that part of something from Australia, Yeah, from Australia. Um, the Aussies to Oshkosh was just starting out and we were just getting bunches of guys together to go to the Oshkosh air show. And it was a, quite a fascinating thing to do. It still is. So, uh, yeah, so I took, uh, I think it was 25 guys. Much easier to take four children than 25 guys, I can assure you. <laughs> were, most of them had never traveled before. They were losing. I was in charge of 50 bags. And the luggage situation was just horrendous. We'd be trying to find all these 50 bags at every place we stopped. We stopped in Hawaii and uh, a few different places, yeah. So these challenges come up in your life all the way along, and I think this is what precedes the the trip now to the US where you you then go across for sort of 15 years. But to get your helicopter business going in Australia, you had to take out, obviously, I think you sold your your car, your boat, all those things, and had to take out a loan to to finance it. And again, being the time, because you're a female, you couldn't guarantee your own loan. And so I think your husband... Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, and then basically you guarantee uh, um, or guarantor took off on you and they basically forced you to, to sell the company. Was that the the story? And is that what then basically pushed you to the well, US? women couldn't borrow money. I owned a townhouse, but even that wasn't good enough for them. I, you know, I sold my car and my boat and I had to borrow $10,000 to buy this old 47J model, and which I actually bought for twenty. 29500 and I got a spare engine at the same time. So I needed to borrow $10,000, but they wouldn't loan it to a woman without a, a male guarantor. So my then husband went as guarantor. He didn't have any money. And so he was accepted as guarantor, and uh, I was the landowner of the townhouse I lived in. And then I found out that he was quite a con man and I showed him the door. And so he said to the bank, sell her up. I'm withdrawing my guarantorship. So I hung on to the helicopter as long as I possibly could. And then I had to sell my J model 
to keep the roof over my kids' head. And then again, when you hit the hit the US now, so you get a job offer to go across, and yep. again things things sort of unfortunately go south yeah, there. I, I, the person who offered me the job, I thought I knew this company, uh, these people in this company quite well, but obviously I didn't know them well enough, and I got there to take their job uh, within a week. Now that's pretty fast to pack up everything and relocate from hemispheres. And so uh, when I got there, I mean, they knew my uh, the number of hours I had, my reputation, my, you know, I'd been chief pilot of my own company. This was 83. And, you know, I got my own company together in 1977. And um, I, know, I understand completely about insurance and you've got to have so many hours to fly. Anyway, I got there and I did a flight test with the FAA and passed that. And uh, and then um, the employer sort of, uh, how shall I put it? Put the hard, um, put the hard uh, word on you. Uh, I put, um, I tell my audience when I'm explaining it why I lost the job. I say I failed the casting couch test. And then someone will ask me, oh, are you an actress? And I then say, no, if I had been an actress, I would not have failed the casting couch test. So uh, I was, the the job, I only had a one-way ticket to get to America and uh, no funds. And so I lost this job that was quite a lot of money. It was $1,000 a week, a house and a car. And I was to fly, you know, the, the scenic routes around the area. And I was so good at joyride uh, selling and flying and that was my past experience. So he refused me the uh, the green card support, uh, which meant I couldn't take the job. And then... I went myself up to the immigration and got it within uh, six weeks. And uh, I was not looking for a green card. I was then told I only needed an L1 visa, which was a company transferee, and I just had to prove that I was doing the same work in Australia as I would be doing in America, and I got it within 24 hours. But it was pretty touch and go at the stage. Like I understand, like you were down to, you know. I got ninety cents in my pocket. I had hocked all my gold jewellery from around my neck. I had a pink mink flying jacket on my shoulders, but you couldn't sell that. And uh, I sold my jewellery for three hundred and five dollars to just get food money because I was pretty hungry and I was drinking water for hunger pains at the time with ninety cents in my pocket, which was a bus fare. Yeah, it was touch and go. And so then I, once I got my L1 visa, I fronted him and I said, here I am. I can take the job. So he gave me a job as a refueler and a ticket seller. And I proved to be the best ticket seller of joyrides that he's ever struck, you know, because of my experience doing it. But I worked for him for six months doing that on $55 a week and, you know, nearly starved to death and had no transport and it was a pretty grim time. But I was sort of out to try to prove to him that, you know, you weren't going to get rid of me. I'm here and I'm going to wait till you give me the job I came for. But I then set up, I left that company after, I did get a return ticket to Australia out of him, an airfare. So I came back to Australia and turned around and went straight back again and set up my own air charter company in America. It's not an easy thing to do when you are what's called a permanent resident alien. And so uh, you can only own 25% of an aviation company. And I had to have uh, a high hours uh, chief pilot, not myself. And so I went into virtually a partnership with a, a high hour pilot. But uh, that wasn't working out real well. He had emotional problems of some kind and was drinking with hangovers, flying with hangovers, which is very much against my belief system and regulations. And then, uh, but the first, we were only in business a month and on the day we went out in business, I had $10 left in the world and he only had seven. So that was our capital. 
family came home. What sort of work were you doing with that business? Uh, uh, Film work. Okay. And it was a a day's filming, and we came home with cash money of $7,500. And that's the way things work in America. They pay you cash, and I actually grossed $35,000 in the first month and the only month that we were in business. But the... uh, the filming on one occasion was they needed another helicopter. We only had one, and so we had to co-opt somebody in the area. And so he flew from his own under his own authority, and uh, he was uh, one pilot, one aircraft operator. And unfortunately, so it was air-to-air shots, and he was carrying the leading actor in this Italian movie, and my pilot had left to go home and it was the last run of the day under a bridge and this other pilot uh, hit hit the bridge and killed himself and the leading actor. So we, I got sued for $10 million uh, because they reckoned it, that person was flying for me, which he wasn't. And, on, you know, we just do our own invoices on the spot and he... He was doing his own invoicing and so forth. Anyway, it was a very sad occurrence, but probably a good thing, to, a good hard way to learn the rules in another country because they go after what's called the deep pockets in any legal uh, argument. And so they, they charge everybody with, with the, uh, the crime and then go after to see who's got as much uh, insurance coverage. Uh, and they go for that, which is called deep pockets. Right. And so you pretty much go to ground at uh, this stage I went then. to ground. I, it was too much for me to understand. I, I was losing control of my company with the pilot, and uh, he was becoming unreliable, and hangovers were just too frequent. And after this, that was it. I just closed up shop. Yeah. But it was an interesting month of grossing $35,000. Yeah, it'd be not bad if you could maintain that <laughs> for, for a while. 1980, 1985, that was. It was a lot of money. Very much so. Uh, and so, yeah, a period down your life and won't probably spend too much time on it, but I think about the same time, um, you know, very sad circumstances. Your son goes missing in Western Australia and it was never found. But it sounds like you really step away from the aviation here for quite a few years and, you know, investigate other sort of interests that you have. But... Uh, did you do any flying in that period, or you had a complete break? Oh no! In the states, I I flew now and again, yeah. and I kept my medicals up in Australia. I actually held commercial licenses, Australian ones, French ones, and uh, US ones. I did fly a bit every now and again, but when I got back to Australia at the end of '97, I then went out to Bankstown and. I renewed my license then, my helicopter licenses, and I've kept my fixed wing time up as well. Okay. But I haven't flown now for a few years, and I'm looking forward to flying again at um, Bankstown. Is, a, is it the Cabra, a little two-seater trainer? Yeah. yeah the, um, uh, I want to have a go at that. Yeah, and it looks like a very nice machine. We interviewed uh, one of the guys in the States a couple of episodes back about that, and uh, all the all the reports are glowing on that. So Yeah, yeah. well, I, I want to fly with a guy called St- Stefan Teschner. Uh, he, I started uh, Chapel in the Sky doing helicopter weddings over Sydney Harbour back in 2004 out of Sydney Helicopters Helipad at Granville, and Stefan was my the most regular pilot that I had doing those weddings, and we became good friends. But he's now an instructor, and he's uh, he, he's instructing on that little cabra. So I, that's what I plan to do when I get back to Sydney next. Brilliant. So let's pick up that and talk about that. So you come back to Australia. Um, so how how old were you, Rosemary, back in two thousand and one? Then, or about in two thousand when you came back. Two thousand and one. So All in right. 60... Just, in two thousand and four, we can jump to there. Yep. I found that I could go to university. Uh, No, 2002, I went to university and did my Bachelor of Aviation degree in 18 months. And I graduated in 2004 when I was age 70. Sure. So that was, if if you can do your maths on that. 
All right, so so graduated from uni at uh, at age seventy, and we probably haven't covered early on. You you had scholarships um, at school and things like that that unfortunately your parents didn't let you take yeah, up. Yeah, um, So this was a chance, I guess, to to close the loop there. Yeah. Um, so. You, you graduate, you've done a, a three-year course in 18 months and picked up credit due to your past um, experience in chief pilot work and things like that. Yeah. And then the um, – oh, hang on, we'll, we'll come back to it. Let's talk about the helicopter weddings first. All uh, right. So, all right, so you've had this idea in um, Las Vegas about helicopter weddings. You've come yeah, back and set up in Australia. So yeah. how, how does a helicopter wedding work? What does it look like? Well, I, I did my my – it's quite a lengthy uh, education to do a civil marriage celebrant course – I graduated in that and approached the uh, Attorney General's Department to do helicopter weddings, airborne, and they wouldn't let me. Uh, Their excuse was you couldn't make eye contact with your passengers. So I sent them all these photos of joyriding and talking to passengers and looking at them and, you know, you you know yourself, you can talk to passengers when you're flying. And uh, so... (laughs) They would not let me be the pilot and the celebrant, so I then had to just do the celebrant's job, and so I needed a five-seater helicopter to do that. So I missed out on being able to do the flying, which was my original idea. But um, Stefan was one of my pilots, and uh, so that, that was where I struck up the friendship with him, and I'll fly again with him. Um, overseas people liked the idea of doing the flight over Sydney Harbour for half an hour. I charged my usual fee, which was around about the 700 mark in Sydney at the time, and then they paid the helicopter company, I think it was around about the 1500 mark for a half-hour flight. I prefer the seven-seater, the long-ranger, because of the configuration of seats, because you're facing the bride and, and groom, and it's a nicer arrangement. Uh, One bride got on board, she was nine months pregnant, and she wore a hooped wedding gown. So here we were piling this hooped wedding gown in the back of the Long Ranger. I ended up, God, Castle would have died if they'd seen me. I've got a photo of it, actually, of the hoop under my chin sitting opposite this bride. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they come on board and they're, they're in stilettos and tiaras and the whole works. All right, and so you go for a trip around Sydney Harbour, and then as you go across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you yes, know you say, I, I, I do. I planned it so that I announced the man and husband and wife right over the southern pylon of the Harbour Bridge at 800 feet, and then the rest of the flight was just a, a great photographic flight, which is a brilliant idea. Yeah. Oh, it's very memorable. And the, Rosemary, there was a mention there, I couldn't quite pick up on it or understand the background, but there's a some conflict of interest where you, you can't be a helicopter marriage celebrant and yeah. own a helicopter. What was the, yeah. the go there? A, they've got a really strict, the Attorney General's Department, um, federal level, you can't be a civil marriage celebrant and have any interest in, say, a florist shop, a hire car business, because that is, as they say, a conflict of interest. And so they stopped me. They said, you can't own a helicopter or any part of a company as well as doing your helicopter weddings. So, all right, so that was that. I didn't own one at the time, but that, that are the restrictions placed on me. Mm. Yeah, and I thought that was very weird. Oh, it's but, weird. Uh... It is weird, yeah. Yeah, you went and had some of your own medicine, I guess, if you put it that way. So you actually yeah. got uh, married in the helicopter over Sydney Harbour Bridge as well. Yes. You know, my parents said girls don't get educated, they only get married. So left school at 15, got married at 18, and three other times after that. Uh, the last time was when I was 72. So uh, that was the fourth time. My children's friends say, oh, what colour is your mother going to wear this time? <laughs> so I call myself a serial bride. Well, you never wanted to do things normally. So while we've got you, do you want to talk about this 18-day flying date that you had across Australia? Oh, yeah. I met my husband. It was a platonic flight across uh, Australia. It was the anniversary, 20th anniversary of my son's disappearance in '77. In, uh, no, 2007 was the 20th anniversary of my son Grant disappearing off Shark Bay. 
And uh, so I wanted to go and thank the people, but it took me 20 years to get there to personally thank the people who searched for him. He was never found. So I, I had become a platonic friend of this pilot, and he happened to say to, in an email, we'd never talked on the phone or anything, it was just emails for 12 months, and he said, I'm going to West Australia, and my girlfriend won't come with me now. I don't suppose you'd be interested in, you know, 50-50 share expenses. I said, yeah, I'll be in that if you'll go up to Shark Bay by a certain date. And so he agreed. So we had what they, the media then thought it was a funny thing to do, and they called it the world's longest blind date. And we'd never met each other except on, we met on the morning show live on camera for the first time at at Melbourne Airport. And uh, so then we jumped in his 172 and flew across the 18 days around the town, around the country. And we got married a few months later. Ah, well done. Uh, <laughs> All right. And, we got married in the helicopter. That was the question you had asked me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The pilot. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, well, it's not bad. We can show people your, your own photo of the, the same service well, you provide. Well, it was my husband's first time uh, flying in a helicopter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump from that. And what we started back is you're, you know, again, back into the academia and the and the degree side of things. So you've done an accelerated course and, and basically wrapped up a, you know, a lifetime of aviation and you've been recognized with a aviation degree. And then a week later, you're back at the same university and you're lecturing. So what subjects are you are you lecturing in or, or did you lecture in? Oh, there, there's a whole batch of subjects. I uh, My favorite was aviation history. Um, but I did, I became a university lecturer at University of Western Sydney at Bankstown um, a week after I graduated, which was an absolute shock to be invited to do such a thing and an absolute thrill. And so, you know, here I was not only hobnobbing again with the 19-year-old fellow students, but uh, I was now their lecturer. And it was a very, very interesting time. I did that for a couple of years until 2006 when they dropped the degree. But uh, aviation history started, I was astounded there was nothing written that could be researched about Australian women pilots. And so I set about to write a book on uh, the first hundred years from 1909 to 2009 of Australian women pilot records. You know, the first to go around Australia, first to cross the Malibu, the first to, you know, and they did some remarkable things. They set long distance records, and but uh, back to the, so I, I wrote a hundred short bios for research purposes, basically for students of aviation, and all the details like dates and license numbers, their proper names, because you know women get married and they change their names, and it, it's really hard to research. But out of the hundred short bios I wrote. I knew 70 of these women, which was quite extraordinary. As a young pilot, just at 28, I met these by their first name, but did not know what records they had set back in the 30s. So, uh, yeah, I called it First Three Miles Above Australia, and uh, I'm re- very proud of that book. Yeah, and again, I must thank you. I've got a copy of the both books there. Uh, that I bought and sent through, and you've uh, written a little message in the front for my for my daughter. So that's you know something uh, we'll, we'll yeah, cherish. I always appreciate that. Yeah, I always uh, all my books are signed and endorsed to whoever it's from. I did uh, twenty thousand kilometres up to Darwin and round to donate the book to different schools, especially the schools of the air. You know, um, they have quite quite a classroom of hundreds of students, and so I donated my book to school libraries to so that the message was out there to inspire girls. I had an interesting thing happen just recently. I got this idea about making pink paper planes. And I sort of use them. I'm a wedding celebrant, and I sometimes use them instead of confetti. I give it to the guests. They make a little paper plane and fly it uh, to the married couple or write a little message on it. So I had this idea for a, a International Women's Day that women 
girls all around the world would fly a paper plane on International Women's Day. So I told a friend this, and she told an organiser of it, and blow me down on the 8th of March this year, all around the world people were flying pink paper planes. There you go. How about that for a simple idea? And how it spreads, yeah. Uh, well, you, there's so much involvement here too. So, well, okay, well, let's talk about. So, there's a Aviation Women's Hall of Fame that you're involved in, and there's oh, also yeah. a Encouragement Awards. Oh yeah, I said I've just chosen my 2016 awardee. Uh, this will be the sixth award that I've given. I call it the first first Females of Other Australia Encouragement Award. It was dis- it's disappointing when you see people apply for scholarship after scholarship and they never get it. And, you know, you you just want to help them along the way. So I just put $500 together and give them this small amount and say, this is an encouragement award. You don't have to spend it on aviation. I just want to encourage you to hang in there and do your flying. So, you know, I've given them as to a 16-year-old was the youngest. Uh, she wants to be, so she did an hour in a helicopter with hers, but she's already got a, a license for a fixed wing. And um, But this time, um, the girls over the years have been absolutely marvellous and they've followed through with their flying and that that I've given it to. And now this time I'm going to pick an old and bold because one said to me recently, you know, I dream of flying every night. And I thought, how sad, you know, because she put so much effort into aviation in the early days so it's going to be an old and bold pilot that gets it this time to go out to the airport and spend $500 on some flying. How do people nominate someone for that or how do people apply? It's just totally a personal thing that I do. It's a personal thing. I just It's my money that I give. I, I just search for some worthy uh, recipient each year. And I try to keep it, you know, in different states of Australia. Yep. Yeah. So I'll be presenting that on the 17th of April at Moorabbin, the Royal Vic Aero Club. All right. Well, let me have to send me the details and I'll be able to give that a plug once you uh, announce the winner. And that would be, uh, um, be great. I'm actually throwing myself a birthday luncheon on the same day. My birthday's the next day, but... Uh, I'm a bit big on parties. <laughs> I picked up on some of your photos that way, but yeah. Uh, well, talk about parties. Then these, um, you know, and again, I'm picturing a, an 18 year old uh, coming through a university course in, in aviation in Sydney, and they're, you know, they're chatting here with this this person with, you know, a huge huge amount of experience, and pretty much you almost cover the entire helicopter uh, history over your career in Australia. So, yeah, what's their biggest questions for you when they're sitting down at the at the university degree and, and chatting with you afterwards? And I, I gather that you uh, do uh, entertain a, a drink or two with them. So <laughs> what are their biggest questions for you? The first day that I had to stand up there and teach aviation history, you know, it was in this sort of beautiful new auditorium with bells and whistles, uh, uh, you know, you, you press a button and a video plays and it's the tiered seats, but the naughty ones are always up on the top level at the back. They're the rowdies. And I was reasonably nervous about how they would accept me at my age being a lecturer. And so I introduced myself and then a hand went up and uh, this uh, here was a question already and he said, can I ask you a question? Is it true that you are Australia's first woman helicopter pilot? And so here I was a bit anxious about finding common ground with these 19-year-olds. And uh, I get asked that question. So they sat up and took a little bit more notice of me at that stage. And I, they used to invite me to all their social gigs. You know, it was quite funny. Uh, that'd be instant, uh, yeah, instant credibility, that's for sure. Yes, it, credibility it was, yes. I didn't ever go into the beer, beer drinking contest. <laughs> well, you know, you were, you, were, you were very experienced by the stage, so there's no yes, need to do and that. They keep in touch. I get, I get emails all the time. Rosemary, looking back, is there any flying roles that you wished you had done as you went through, or did you, do you, did you sort of get to do a little bit of everything that you were happy with? Well, I... Originally, I used to want to be a reporter, 
you know, a traffic reporter. And, you know, it was never done in those days. It was being done in America quite quite widely. But uh, I realised then that it didn't matter where you sat in traffic in Sydney, for instance, because you weren't going anywhere and you couldn't find an alternate route. So all it did was to tell you that there'd been a praying up ahead and it's going to take you a while to get to work. But I never got that job, I, but that was one that I sort of wanted. But I'm very happy to have introduced so many thousands of people to helicopter flying with the Joyride Circuit. And I, I'm very proud of that. And uh, I still get uh, I still get contact. One guy, I was at the Safe Skies conference. Oh, I met Andy Thomas, who's become a close friend. I use him as my role model for kids, 10-year-olds. That's astronaut Dr. Andrew Thomas. And I was meeting. I met Andrew Thomas at this Safe Skies um, meeting in a conference in Canberra. But this very tall young man came up to me. He was well over six foot, and he said, "You won't remember me." And I said, "Oh." He said, "But you gave me my first helicopter ride at the Lidcombe Hospital Fate in your floral helicopter." And he said. I'll never forget it. He said, my father was the fate organizer. And when you found that uh, you that I was going to have a ride, you came down the long list of people and grabbed me and put me up the head of the queue. And he said, now I work for ATSB. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Such a, you know, a small Even thing early seven, on. Yeah, and, uh, really tiny tot. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, wow. And what, what did you ever find out what happened to your helicopter? Do you know where it ended up? Oh, it had ended up in a crashed heap. Yeah. Helly must have bought it, and they he painted it white. So he painted all the flowers out, but he left the floral interior, and he nicknamed it Blossom. Uh, and then uh, it had a crash up in, in the Northern Territory, I think, and then it went was rebuilt, and it went to Barossa Helicopters, where I know the girls there, the, the yep. Barossa Helicopter Chicks, and the Chopper Chicks. And they had a crash with it too, and it wrote it off. Then it was never that the, the uh, THH. I don't think has ever been uh, reassigned the Rego. All right, fair enough. Yeah. All right, Rosemary. Well, let's close out, I guess, with with two sort of questions. The first one was going to be, you know, what's your best safety tip specifically as a as a helicopter pilot? And then the second one, I guess, a bit more general, but. You know, there's a bit of an industry downturn at the moment in terms of, uh, you know, the oil and gas market's slow and it's supposed to push everything back down uh, for people getting work. You know, you've had some of those challenges along the way. What sort of advice do you have for people in terms of just keep plugging away and, and keep working towards their dreams? So the first one, yeah, I guess we talk about, you know, what would be if you could pass on one safety tip and then a bit of life advice. Um, I think um, I'm very proud of a book I wrote called Think Aviation, and I distributed that in my speaking. Um, it was to do with aviation careers. I think there were 44 of them that I wrote about and how to be. And the basis of that was because pilots get to a stage where they may lose their medical and they want to stay in aviation so they then can go sideways and be something else in the aviation industry. So that was the basis, uh, the reason behind writing the book of the career advice. And uh, as far as being a pilot is concerned, I think the best advice is to keep on with your positive thinking and and keep your standard high. You're only competing against yourself as far as standards go, so you've got to be the best possible pilot you can. But positive thinking is a critical thing. As I said, you know, a hundred times a day out on the joyride circuit, would be said to me, a woman pilot will all be killed. And, you know, that might sound funny for the first few times you hear it, but my gosh, it gets old. And it, it gets into your, your subconscious if you don't keep yourself, your head above it, and know your own, uh, you keep your own values and know your own values and, and work within that. I think that's sort of the best idea, but... If you want to, there's, there are a lot of aviation uh, careers that somebody can have. I always say, keep your credentials of what you had before you became a pilot, 
because you've got to wear several hats. And when there's a lean time, you might have to go and be an estate agent or sell cars or anything, have a coffee cart. But, you know, have a couple of hats that you can wear at all all times and, and keep a balance in your life that way. Don't expect one career in life not anymore. It doesn't happen. Wow, that's great. Well, <laughs> that's why I'm a motivational speaker, you see. Yeah, you're professional, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I just love 10-year-olds. And, you know, my theme is... Um, I, I use the butterfly, the caterpillar and the butterfly all the time because, you know, here the caterpillar, even it can fly because it's got the potential to become a butterfly. So we tap into our inner strengths and our inner talents to, to raise us to great heights in life. And uh, Andy Thomas, let me just go quickly back to Andy. At the age of 10, he said to his mother in Adelaide, Mum, I'm going to be an astronaut. And she said, oh, yes, Andy. And this is a true story. I checked it with her. And uh, he went on to become the first Australian-born Australian citizen astronaut. And he to get in and to win the credentials, use his credentials, he kept increasing his credentials. He got hold of the resumes, the CVs of other astronauts, and he set out to not just equal them, but to better them. So he went from, you know, uh, education to education to become what he became. And the first, he set the record for the first uh, moonwalk, uh, not moonwalk, spacewalk. He walked for seven hours out there in space. And I say to kids I'm talking to, seven hours walking in a space suit and there's no McDonald's out there. So he's he's my greatest uh, the the role model that I present to kids because ten year olds that's when they set their goals and they've got to stick keep them to that. And um, a ten year old I'd want to be a vet, but I didn't get the education to become a veterinary surgeon. But you know other things happen. They yeah. certainly did. It's uh you've had a, a very full life and uh, look, Rosemary, thank you very much for the privilege of yeah sharing that with uh, with us and and for the listeners. It's been a pleasure been an absolute pleasure, Mick, and we'll chat any time. All right. Well, I'll include some links to your books and, and the website and some photos where people can come and, uh, yeah, find out a little bit more about uh, yeah, all the things you've done. Yeah, I'm on Facebook on Port Ferry Weddings and also on, with my own name. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank Thanks, you, Rosemary, for being part of the Rotary Wing Show. Okay. That was Rosemary Arnold, the first female helicopter pilot in the Southern Hemisphere and someone that played a a big part in the early helicopter industry here in Australia. She certainly had her share of adventures over the years and is mixed with a a really large cross-section of the industry. Rosemary has a couple of books that you can check out if you'd like to find out more. So the two books I've got sitting here in front of me on the desk, the first one is Smile at the Sky, Even Caterpillars Can Fly. It covers most of the highlights of her career, including many of the newspaper clippings that Rosemary has kept over the years. And the second one is First Females Over Australia, the first hundred years of Australian female pilot first. And as the title suggests, it's a collection of short bios of pioneering women in Australian aviation and you know quite a few that Rosemary's actually met and, and known personally. There's a short passage here that I thought I'd share from, from that book. And the title of the section is Aviation Observations. Most pilots will tell of domestic difficulties with partners who don't involve themselves with aviation, and airline pilots have a high divorce rate. It is often described as the flying bug or a disease, but whatever flying has, it seems to hold beneficial effects for the pilot. Worries seem to stay on the ground, for once in the air, that umbilical worry cord is severed. The mind becomes refreshed and strengthened with confidence and ability to cope. The other book that's still waiting to be released is Hovering Matilda, which will be more of a full memoir book of Rosemary's careers and her thoughts going through that. Why Not Think Aviation is a PDF guide that Rosemary's written and it covers, as she mentions in the interview, a whole range of aviation careers outside the actual The Flying. And I'll link to that from the show notes for this episode, which you can find at rotarywingshow.com along with the photos of Rosemary and astronaut Andy Thomas and some photos there of Rosemary with her daughters acting as ground crew 
and her Bell 47J helicopter, nicknamed the Triple Happy Helicopter due to its rego. If you want to be married in a helicopter over at Sydney Harbour, then Rosemary can obviously also hook you up with that. Thanks to episode sponsors, trainmorepilots.com. Today's marketing tip is about Facebook audiences. Inside the Facebook ad platform, you can get a piece of code that you can then place on your website that will tag the website visitors. What this allows you to do is run Facebook ads to people that have visited your website or even a particular page on your website. An example is you could run ads about your Night VFR training package only to people that have visited your Night VFR training webpage. And in doing so, you're getting ability to have a really targeted message to a group of people who have already identified themselves interested in Night VFR training. If you've ever visited a website and then noticed their ads appearing more regularly as you move around the web, then this is one of the ways that they do this. You can find out more marketing tips for your aviation business at trainmorepilots.com. Thank you, as always, for catching the podcast, and I hope it brings you into contact with more of the stories that make up our industry. If you can spare 30 seconds to review the show on iTunes or to share an episode with someone that you think might get something from it, then that's really appreciated. Till next time, do as Rosemary suggests, keep your standards high and keep learning. Cheers. Cheers.